Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul, in, haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And he said to him, follow me. Last week, our passage told the story of Thomas, his initial doubt, and his eventual belief. But ultimately, it is a story about you and me and our attempts to overcome doubt and to believe. Now, this, this morning's passage requires me to qualify one of the things I said last week about believing. I said that one of the compelling reasons for believing in the resurrection as a historical reality is what happens to the disciples. You know, these no-account, often misguided followers undergo a radical transformation. They become fearless, unfazed by imprisonment and execution. And you think, well, how could such a thing happen? How could such a transformation take place? Well, maybe the most plausible explanation is 
the explanation they themselves provide. Their rabbi, whom they had witnessed die, and whom they buried, suddenly showed up in their midst, in the flesh. Now, the reason I have to qualify the argument is not is that this transformation isn't immediate. But of course, it makes sense that it's not immediate. I mean, remember these guys, they gave up everything to be with Jesus, to follow him. And they did so because they believed God had anointed Jesus to restore Israel's power and glory. Instead, Rome nails him to a cross and props him up on the side of the road like a billboard promoting the power and glory of Rome. If there is any upside to Jesus' death, it's this. It's clear what you have to do if you're a disciple. You have to learn to move on. You have to accept that the last two years you spent following Jesus were a waste of time, you were wrong about him, and, well, time to move on. But what does resurrection mean? That you were right? That he is, in fact, the one to fulfill all your expectations? Or does his resurrection, like his execution, require you to revise your expectations? I mean, it had to have been overwhelming. Now, personally, when I find myself overwhelmed by questions I can't ask, answer, what I do is, I know the right answer is pray, but I shoot baskets in the driveway. It's sort of a prayer, I guess. It's, it's because I need to simplify things. I need to simplify the world, and shooting baskets does that for me. It requires nothing of me in 2022 that it didn't require of me in 1982. You know, square up, bend your knees, follow through. Well, overwhelmed by Jesus' resurrection, the disciples need a similar sort of activity. I'm going fishing, says Peter. And according to the text, that sounds like a good idea to everyone else, too. Of course it does, right? As with shooting baskets, it simplifies the world. It's just about getting things into a net. In this case, fishes rather than swishes. Came up with that one myself. You don't get that out of commentaries, folks. Anyway, however, their night of fishing provides no escape. They do all the things they used to do and get none of the results. I mean, I catch as many fish shooting baskets in the driveway as they do on the Lake uh, Sea of Tiberias. Zero. Then someone appears on the shore, calls out some advice. Hey, try the right side of the boat. Now, if this sounds familiar to any of you, first of all, I could kiss you. Because that means you remember a sermon from a few months back. Because we looked at a passage from Luke, which tells a very similar story. It's, one of the, it's a story about the calling of those first disciples, right? Same thing happens. Disciples are out fishing all night, catch nothing. Jesus tells them to try again on the other side of the boat. And in this case, it's a in both cases, it's a huge catch after that. Does anyone recall, anyone recall how Peter responds that first time? I'll tell you how he responds. 
tells Jesus to get out of there. Leave. Because at that point in the story, Jesus is just this holy man who's just sort of wandered into, the, uh, into his neck of the woods preaching and suddenly pulls out this divine, wondrous trick. And Peter feels unworthy. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Well, his reaction here is different. And that his reaction is one of the three, there are three things I love about this passage. And Peter's reaction is the first thing that I love. It's, it's similar to his reaction the first time in that he's clearly a little rattled. And I love that it lends support to my theory that uh, Peter has ADD, which I can relate to him on that. Because he, he just lacks a filter. You know, he blurts out stuff. And sometimes it's good stuff. Sometimes it's dumb stuff. But it's always unfiltered. He just acts on impulse. That's what he's doing here. He's the Lord, says John. And Peter jumps into action. And not a lot of thought into the action. I mean, there's this desire to see Jesus. And apparently, he wants to look presentable, so he grabs his clothes and then jumps over the side of the boat. And I imagine about halfway to shore, he's thinking, man, swimming would be so much easier without this you know, flowing woolen garment I just put on. But anyway, uh, if only I had another way of getting to shore, like a boat. Oh, man, should have thought this through. But anyway, let's just hope for Peter's sake that he gets there first. Text sort of implies that, because that'd be rough. If not only did he jump out of the boat, but that they're like, hey, Peter. You know, anyway, so jumps out of the boat, soaking wet, gets to shore. Second thing I love about this passage is what happens when they get to shore. It's something I hadn't really noted until I read a reflection on it by the novelist David James Duncan. If you like baseball or fishing, you should check out his novels. They're great. He claims that there's something about fishing that instills an obsession with statistics. You know, the length of the catch, the weight, etc., blah, blah, blah. And according to Duncan, this passage demonstrates, demonstrates that the disciples were true fishermen. After all, John does not simply say they caught a lot of fish. He gives us a number. And not a round number, not, a, not an estimate. You know, if it was like, well, like 150, you'd be like, okay, that's an estimate. 153, that's the number he gives us. That is not an estimate. And sometimes numbers in the Bible have symbolic meaning. You know, multiples of seven, for example, or multiples of 12. 153 is symbolic of nothing. In other words, it only says 153 because it's they decided to take the fish that were in this pile, start another pile, and count them one at a time, and the second to the last fish was 152, and the last fish was 153. And John was said, I'm going to write that down. Sure enough, he did. So we all know they caught 153. I think he's, Duncan's right. This is evidence that we are clearly dealing with some real, honest-to-goodness fishermen. They weren't going to let this, a catch like this happen without getting an exact count. I also think it's evidence that they still have no idea what to do, how to deal with resurrection. After all, it's only the third time Jesus has appeared to them. It's the first, third time since they witnessed him die that horrible death. 
that person that they left everything to follow and whom they thought they would lost forever, there he is. What do they what to make of this? What can they expect from him? What does he expect from them? That's just too overwhelming. Counting. Counting makes sense. So while their resurrected Savior, second person of the Trinity, continued to tend the fire, they count fish. And Jesus doesn't take offense. Just Nice on his part. In fact, when, he, when, they're done, when they're done, he cooks them breakfast. He'll cook them breakfast, and afterward, he will bring a little clarity to what resurrection means. More specifically, he's going to bring some clarity to Peter. And let's face it, of all the disciples, Peter needs that answer the most. After all, he's the one that had said in the night of his arrest, he said, I'll follow you anywhere, I'll die for you. And rather than thanking him for that loyalty pledge, Jesus says to him, here's what you're going to do, Peter. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. I mean, can you imagine how offensive that was at the time? At the time, you still believed that you were the person that would die for Jesus. But then, you go out and do it. Imagine having to confront that in yourself. You are the opposite. You are the opposite of who you puffed yourself up to be. Imagine not only have to confront that fact, but to know that the person you admire most in the world knew that that was in you before you did. He knew it with such certainty. He told you the number of times you would prove it and the time span you would prove it in. And it's not like he said it behind your back. He says it straight to your face. And that night you still get so lost in your own insecurities and fear that you do exactly what he says three times. What's it like to carry that around? You tell anyone? My guess is you don't. You want to let anybody in on that shame? Now, imagine you're Jesus. And you, you know he's carrying that around. You know that he's hoping that you, he's hoping that you don't know that he's carrying it around. And you know that when he jumps out of that boat, part of what he's trying to do is prove himself again. Look how loyal I am. I'm, I'm going to swim back to shore, fully dressed. So if you're Jesus, you bring it up. You talk to him about what happened that evening. I can tell you, if I was in Jesus' position, I wouldn't. I don't like making people uncomfortable. Uh, and I don't say that as a badge of honor. I suppose it's nice. I don't, you know, it's nice that I don't enjoy watching people squirm. But sometimes things need to be said. For example, you don't want someone like me as your doctor, right? The doctor, you know, gets some alarming uh, test results, but chooses to tell you some funny stories because who doesn't like funny stories? You know, I'll tell you who doesn't like funny stories. Someone who has a tumor that needs to know they have a tumor. Someone who has cancer. 
Because if you don't talk about it, if you don't deal with it, it's going to be fatal. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, of course, of course, needs to be addressed. Maybe you're one of those people that prides themselves on their willingness to tell it like it is. You know, now, if, you're, if you are that type of person, I imagine you have been in a situation where you, know, you, told, you, know, you addressed the thing that needed to be addressed and that person became defensive and they tried to turn the tables and start accusing you of things. And, you know, it was a total disaster. And I, I suppose that's not your fault. You can't be responsible for someone's behavior. If they can't handle hearing what needs to be said, well, I guess that is, that is on them. It's not all on you. Now, despite the fact that I just said I don't like to say things that make people uncomfortable, you should totally believe me when I say those disasters aren't at all your fault. Truth be told, it is fine for us to imagine ourselves in Jesus' position. Try to figure, consider how we might respond. But ultimately, it's wonderful that you and I aren't in Jesus' position because he's so much better at it. He's so much better at it than we would be. And I got to say, his handling of this matter with Peter, I think it's brilliant. The third thing I love about this passage. Way back in the Gospels opening chapter, Jesus desc- or John describes Jesus as full of grace and truth. And I believe it was Richard Maurer uh, who pointed out that you and I, we tend to be one or the other. Full of truth and lacking grace, or full of grace and lacking truth. But not Jesus. Jesus is full of both. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Asked Jesus. An odd question, but not one Peter is reluctant to answer. Yes, you know that I love you. In response, Jesus affirms Peter's calling. He's to care for the flock. But then Jesus asks again, and Peter responds as before. After again charging Peter to care for the flock, he asks a third time. You know, had Jesus brought it up directly, brought up that night directly, I think all Peter would have experienced was his own shame, his own guilt. I think it might have killed him. Might have killed him. And Jesus is about resurrection. Jesus needs Peter to know he's forgiven. He wants him freed from his shame and guilt so he can live as he is called. So amazingly, Jesus finds a way of addressing it without mentioning it. It is full of grace and full of truth. So nearly 2,000 years later, we still have these questions about what does it mean that Jesus lives, that he's on the loose, 
making whole the broken, healing the wounded, welcoming home the lost and alone. But what we see here about what that means is that it, he illustrates exactly what John said about him, that he is full of grace and truth. And at the very least, if we want to know what it means to live in light of the resurrection, it means we should not settle for one or the other. We should not settle for a shallow grace, a life in which we deal with unresolved conflict by just being nice and nothing more than that. Nor should we settle for just the harsh truth, a life in which we confuse being hurtful with just being honest. No, because if Jesus is alive, if he won the battle over sin and death, then grace and truth are no longer opposites. The truth is that there is grace for all of us. So in our own unresolved conflicts, you know, reconciliation is not always possible, not in this life, not before Christ makes all things new. But, he, but it is possible. And he, even when it is possible, it's always going to be difficult. Because it's always an act of truth and grace. So it's going to have to, it's going to require us to move beyond just being nice. It's going to require us to move beyond just telling it like it is. But the good news is this, is that the one who is full of grace and truth is resurrected. He is alive and he is on the move. And so in our unresolved conflicts, we, if we open ourselves to his grace and truth, we may discover him to be alive in the midst of it. There in our own unresolved conflicts, we might experience resurrection. Right in the midst of where we have been hurting, right in the midst of our wounds, we might discover the meaning of Easter. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, Amen.